How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship this evening and ready to study the word as God the Holy Spirit empowers us in our Christian life. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to be reminded about the priorities in our Christian life, to be reminded that as believers we are to live differently because we are different. And Father, we just pray that we might be mindful of that and that we might be responsive to the challenge from the word this evening. In Christ's name, amen. We're in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and last time we finished up looking at the some of the gifts, primarily prophecy last time. In Romans 12, 6, Paul says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And probably the best understanding of that, as I pointed out, is according to the standard of doctrine. Faith is a word that is often used to refer not only to the act of believing, but to what is believed. We often talk about a person's faith, that is what they believe, their religious affiliation. And so that's the idea here, that prophecy was according to a standard. And last time I looked at the uh, passages in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 that described the criteria in the Old Testament for evaluating biblical prophecy. We looked at the list of gifts, put this chart on the screen a couple of times showing that it, there are four basic lists, one in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, focusing on leadership, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. In 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, there's another list given. These are all uh Temporary gifts like apostles and prophets. First uh, Corinthians twelve twenty eight. We have another list that has five temporary gifts: apostles, prophets, healings, miracles, and tongues. And then the Romans uh, twelve six through eight lists only prophecy as a temporary gift, emphasizing gifts related to service in the body. Mostly, we have. Uh, the gift of teaching mentioned in Romans 12, leadership or management. It's a different word from the administration in, used in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Similar concept, a synonym there. Uh, service, mercy, exhortation, and giving. So <clears throat> that first verse, we are to prophesy the standard is the faith or doctrine according to truth. We might paraphrase it that way. Then we come to Romans 12:7. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. And verse 8, he who exhorts in exhortation, 
Let the one who give, give with liberality, as it's stated there. And um, the one who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So we see certain repetitious uh, words used in repetition there, uh, prophecy, prophesying, service, and serving, uh, teaching. The one who teaches, let him teach with uh, an exhortation. Uh, these are the key words there. Giving is defined in terms of liberality, uh, which is the Greek word uh, haplotes, which has really the best idea there. It's not just with generosity. That's Some people suggest that, but the main idea is giving with no strings attached. Leading has the word, is described as being diligent, and mercy with cheerfulness or graciousness. So we'll go back over these terms as we go through the passage. So in Romans 12, verse 8, Verse 7, rather, in ministry, let us use it in ministering. The New Testament word here is the, the noun is diakonia. Now, we get our word deacon from that word. It's really a broad-based word. It has a general sense of any type of service that is rendered to God. Anytime we serve in the local church or we do anything uh, serving the Lord in our life, then that comes under the category of service. It's also used to describe many different actions and activities in the uh, local church performed by uh, everyday believers as well as apostles in the book of Acts. And then it has a specific sense in which it is used to describe uh, service to those who have some sort of special need. Maybe they are ill, maybe they are financially destitute, maybe they just need aid or help uh, doing something, but it is used in that sort of specific sense, not just in terms of general Christian service, but in terms of specific aid uh, to someone who has uh, specific problems or specific uh, difficulties. And this word, as it is used in... um, you know, and, and as a spiritual gift can be applied a number of different ways in the local church. Someone who teaches in prep school, someone who works in the nursery, someone who uh, provides baked goods for fellowship and snacking and keeping us all round and healthy looking. That can all be a function of service, uh, serving on the deacon board in different capacities. All of these can be manifestations of someone's spiritual gift of service. So it, it, singing in the choir it combines with different, uh, can combine with different talents. So it's a, uh, a broad-based word for, un, for serving in the body of Christ and ministering to others. The word often is translated with that English word ministry. So in some way, just coming to the aid, helping someone is a, as a broad use of that term. In the latter part of that verse, we read those, the one who teaches in teaching. So it doesn't give anything more specific than that, although the word that is used there for teaching, which is, uh, uh, 
didaskalos is the noun, the one who teaches. This is a word that indicates teaching or explanation. It's not necessarily the same as pastor-teacher. A pastor, the, the metaphor of pastor-teacher or the metaphor of pastor is really depicts leadership. If you look at the role of a shepherd, because the Greek word for pastor uh, uh, is the word that means a shepherd. What does a shepherd do in relation to his flock? He leads them to food. He leads them to that which sustains them, that which provides nourishment for them, and he protects them. So the pastoral function is related to leadership, and that leadership is defined narrowly in Scripture through teaching. We can demonstrate that a number of places. The fact that he talks about the pastor teacher in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 is one passage, but I think the more clear passage is in John chapter 21 when Jesus is having his uh, discussion with Peter around the breakfast campfire after they had a little trouble fishing and they were up all night and they didn't catch anything and Jesus showed up on the bank. They weren't sure who he was. They said, well, throw your net out on the other side of the boat and they did and they hauled in a catch that was too almost too great for the boat and they came at that point they realized who that must be on the shore and they came ashore and they ate breakfast and afterwards Jesus had a, a little lesson for Peter this is the first time that the Lord had spoken to Peter since Peter had betrayed him and so the Lord turned to him and he asked him a question it's translated the same in English but he uses synonyms. There's about there's four pairs of synonyms used in that little interchange when Jesus is addressing Peter, and he starts off, do you love me? Now, to understand that question, you have to understand what Jesus taught in the upper room, and his emphasis on love in the upper room was related to obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. And Jesus is, is telling Peter what what his ministry will be. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus responded at that point three different ways in each of these interchanges, saying, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs, and feed my sheep. And he uses different words for sheep and different words for feeding. But the point is, the role and responsibility of the apostle as a as one who equipped the saints, just like a pastor teacher does, is to function through feeding, through providing spiritual nourishment for God's people who are described as, uh, by analogy, as a flock. So it's important to understand this is what it means to be a pastor. You've heard this sometimes. I've heard this most of my uh, professional life as a pastor. I'll hear somebody say, well, they're just so pastoral. And we've got this evangelical culture that that identifies pastor with with some sort of caregiving, someone who comes uh, more along the line of not just exhortation, but someone who seems to really connect with people and their problems and seems to have a certain kind of personality. And I've heard that in a number of different different venues, but people think about that's what it means to be a pastor. 
Well, biblically, what it means to be a pastor is to be someone who is a good teacher, a someone who clearly explains the Word of God so that people can understand it and it can be used in their life so that they can grow to spiritual maturity. So pastor-teacher is the role of a, it's a leadership gift, but there's also a gift of teaching. And we have people who have the gift of teaching. They, some of them teach in prep school, and they do an excellent job. Uh, there are others who just work at teaching. They may not be gifted in that area, but we're all to teach one another, Hebrews says. So there's an area of, of responsibility there for everyone, whether or not they're gifted in that area. But for the person who is gifted in that area, he should labor in being able to properly and correctly handle the scriptures and explain it. And that can operate in a number of different uh, venues or environments. It can be a home Bible study. It can be a child evangelism fellowship uh, club. And by the way, our child evangelism fellowship club is doing well. I think uh, almost every week we discover some other uh, child who has trusted in the Lord, and those people who are working with it are doing a tremendous job. It takes an extra added effort, an added amount of time every week in order out of everybody's schedule to do that, but it is a tremendous ministry. How can you measure the things that we do on a day-to-day basis against the eternal destiny of a child? And that's what comes out of this. It's just tremendous to see that. It's not easy sometimes. The kids are, are uh, uh, get to be a little rambunctious. You're dealing with a lot of cross-cultural situations because most of these kids come out of a Hispanic background. Some of them are believers and some of them are not, but we've had a number of the ones who, who aren't come to know the Lord. So that's just a tremendous thing. And that's a great ministry that this congregation's involved in. So we need to continuously be in prayer for them. But each one of the folks that, that work with that work at teaching. So that's the role of teaching. It's just explaining what the scripture means so that God the Holy Spirit can use it in the life of the people that we're teaching, the life of the students, so that they can grow spiritually. Now the next verse, verse 8, says that the one who exhorts in exhortation. And here we have the same word used uh, twice. The one who exhorts, uh, <clears throat> this is the uh, verb form. It's a participle, parakaleo. And then we have the noun form, paraklesis which is the one I have up on the screen. But they mean the same thing. Exhortation is one of those words that, that may be a little fuzzy in the mind of some people. It basically means to challenge someone to a particular course of action. It's to encourage someone, uh, not just to challenge them maybe in a, in a strong way but because they're not doing it, but to encourage them as they're trying to do it. Uh, this is what we see. I think a great analogy is with an ath- a- athletic performance as you're cheering somebody on, encouraging them to to put forth every effort and to continue to put forth 120% and to continue to do well even though things may not be going well in terms of circumstances. Last week I saw a great example of this. Uh, several of us in the congregation who've had connections to Connecticut uh, went with... Uh, Few people that uh, that that uh, also that teach up at the school where we're having a child evangelism fellowship, 
and that are also pro-Yukon. You know, when we first went to Connecticut, I thought Yukon was in Alaska. But UConn's a University of Connecticut, and their women's basketball team is number one again this year. I mean, that's just like every year they're number one. They just do an incredible job. They beat the U of H women's team by 51 points. But they, so how do you, I'm thinking as I'm watching this, how would I put forth an effort? How can I reach inside of me and give it 120% when every 15 minutes, I'm down by another 10 points, and I'm not getting anywhere. And those girls on the U of H team just kept work. They never slowed down. They never gave up. They just kept uh, persevering. And the coaches are encouraging them, and the people in the stands are encouraging them, and that's what encouragement is and how it relates. And we aren't supposed to give up, but we have people who encourage us and challenge us, and that can be manifested in different ways. Encouragement isn't giving someone a hug. That may be a part of it. I'm not saying don't give somebody a hug when they're having a hard time. That's always nice. But that's part of it. What what gives comfort, Scripture says, Paul says, for example, at the time of death, we're to comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter chapter 4, we're to comfort one another by explaining the doctrine of the rapture. That when so anyone who has died, who believed in Jesus, is with the Lord, and they will go to be with the Lord and gain, get their resurrection body when the Lord returns in the clouds. And we're at the end of that discussion in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, Paul says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's the same word that for encouragement. We primarily comfort people with the word of God, reminding them of Scripture. I know when I've gone through some uh, challenges here or there in life, there are always a host of truly good friends but they are they often repeat back to me things that I have said in the pulpit. That's just disgusting. <laughs> That's the last thing you want to hear as a pastor is somebody saying, Well, you taught me <laughs> So you hear it again. But that's exhortation, challenging people with the word of God. So we're to um, those who exhort, who have the gift of exhortation with encouragement from the scriptures. And then at the, um, uh, he who leads, or excuse me, he who gives with liberality. That's the second clause in uh, verse 8. I mentioned this earlier. This is the spiritual gift of giving. Now, I don't want to make this as a blanket statement because I don't think this is true. I've seen some people who are like the widow in the story where Jesus told about the widow who only had uh, her two mites. A mite was worth about two or three cents maybe and may not be worth that now. Uh, And she took one of them and put it in the offering at the temple. She gave freely. She gave of what she had in order to show her worship of God through giving. There are those who do that, who give just a, a, a small amount because that is all that they have. And those who work in ministry need to respect that, that people have given of what the Lord has provided for them, and some of them it has been hard for them to give, 
others not so hard. But one one area in giving that I've noticed is there are some people who God not only has given them the gift of giving, he's given them the gift of making money. And we know people like that. And this church has benefited from some people like that because the Lord gives them that ability to produce wealth in order to supply the needs of pastors and missionaries and churches. And, and they understand that. And, and it's remarkable to watch some people who are gifted in that area as well and understand that that's a part of their responsibility, that God hasn't just given them the ability to make money so that they can have a comfortable lifestyle, but he's given them that ability so that they can bless the church and bless other believers with the resources that God has given them. And that is part of the doctrine of giving. Now, I think this second word, haplotes, should be translated in the sense of no strings attached. That's what we mean when we use the phrase giving as unto the Lord. We're giving to the Lord. When we pass the plate on Sunday morning or some of you just regularly just mail a check in or maybe use PayPal in order to uh, submit your donation to the church, you recognize that every dollar you make, whether you keep it or whether you give it, it really belongs to the Lord. He's the one who supplied us with our jobs. He's the one who supplies the financial resources that we have, and we are to use everything that we have to glorify God. Well, part of that is involved in taking care of our own needs, our own uh, responsibilities, providing for our present and our future. And then we have uh, resources that we can provide to help with the uh, logistical needs of the local church as well as missionaries. But we're to give this as unto the Lord. That means that we're giving this to the, to the missionary, the missionary organization, the church, and we recognize that they're going to use that as they see fit as unto the Lord. And it's not necessarily our responsibility to sit back and... Uh, critically judge them. When I was about 20 or 21 years old, uh, I was at a church that was going through a bit of a split, and there was a group of people that got upset and left. And there was a man, an older gentleman, who was uh, uh, who sat near where I sat, and I overheard a conversation where he made the point no, I'm not, because a number of people who left were his friends. He says, I'm not leaving. I've given a lot of money to this church, and I want to make sure it's spent well. Now, a lot of people have that kind of mentality. That's not giving as unto the Lord. You give as unto the Lord, then once that dollar bill or whatever leaves your hand, that belongs to somebody else. It belongs to the Lord. The Lord's going to take care of the organization that you give it to, and they need to use it as unto the Lord, and they're responsible to the Lord for how they use that. And so we don't come along and second-guess. I've been involved with a number of different Christian organizations over the years, and I've discovered that they all make mistakes. They all have problems with one thing or another because there are sinners involved in every single church. In fact, this last week I uh, had the opportunity to sit down and have coffee with a, with a um, longtime friend who I had not seen in about 10 years, 
and she's gone through many different uh, challenges in her life over the last 20 or 30 years. And we had worked together at a Christian ministry some 40 years ago, and we were just kind of catching up on how things were. And we both, she was commenting that one of the hardest things to do is to work in a Christian ministry. People have an idealistic view of, well, if you're serving the Lord, you're working for a missionary organization or a church, that things are just going to be better. And remember, a church or missionary organization and the people that work there have a bullseye on their butt for the angelic conflict. And the devil just loves to stir up a lot of trouble. And I've been involved in some Christian organizations where there have just been some real nasty things going on simply because of people's sin natures. And that's not any different from working at Exxon or Shell or working for the local school district or working in the grocery store or the police department or military. People have problems, and people don't always make the wisest decisions and are the decisions you think are the wisest and how they utilize their resources. But we have to deal with all of those organizations in grace and realize that that ultimately if we're, we we select our organizations to support they're the ones who are going to promote the word and so we're going to do what we can financially uh to make that possible so that's what it means to give uh no strings attached now the next uh the next uh phrase uh Paul says he who leads with diligence the word for leading is prahistemi, which means to lead or to manage or to administer something. To lead or to manage or administer something. And the word for diligence is the word spude, which means zeal or diligence or exertion. Spudazo is the verb that is related to, it's a cognitive spude, when you read in First um, uh, Timothy, when Paul says, "Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed," when you look over in the New American Standard or the NIV, they'll translate that "be diligent." Well, the context is related to study, so I think study is an appropriate nuance of the term in the context that we have in Timothy. It means to be diligent as a student of the word, and that would be uh, by implication to study. But here it's not related to study. It's related to leadership, working hard at being a good leader, a good manager or administrator in the local church. So the one who leads, who has the spiritual gift of leadership or administration, should do so with diligence, to work hard at it, should have a passion for it. Mercy is the last one, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Remember, I made a point of distinguishing between mercy and grace. We've often heard it said that mercy is grace in action. Grace is the foundation for mercy. If you're not grace-oriented, you can't exercise mercy very well. But mercy is not a sort of uh, emotional, sentimental, pseudo-compassion. Mercy is trying to help someone who has a genuine need because of the consequences of sin. Grace deals with the foundational problem of sin, 
that we're saved by grace through faith, but mercy is the application of grace to specific situations where people are suffering the consequences of sin. Now, it may be their sin. It may be the sin of just living in, I mean, the, the sin of the world. It may be the result of living in the cosmic system and living in a fallen environment. Uh, for example, we, you may have mercy on someone. For example, Jesus showed compassion to those who were, who had leprosy, to those who had, uh, who were blind, those who were lame. Uh, this was not necessarily the, the, their fault. It wasn't their responsibility, but it was because they lived in a fallen world and were suffering the consequences of sin. And just because the consequences that someone is suffering uh, uh, are the result of their bad decision doesn't mean we should say, well, you know, if you just made a better decision, things wouldn't be so bad. You just suffer your own consequences. That's not being very gracious. We all make mistakes, and we all suffer the consequences, and mercy is when we try to help and encourage one another when we're going through those consequences, whether they are uh, directly related to bad decisions on our part or not. Usually we make what we think are good decisions, and they end up being bad. Of course, there are other times when we we know we're being rebellious towards God and we suffer those consequences. So mercy should be applied in, uh, the word is hilarotes. We get our English word hilarious from this word. It has the idea not of cheerfulness in the sense of somebody who's just happy and carefree, but in the sense of someone who is uh, very gracious uh, in what they are doing. That's why I translate it that way when I talk about giving. Uh, that we are to, God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. That's the idea there. It's somebody who's grace-oriented, and they're being very gracious and positive in their uh, help for others. So that's how we apply mercy is in a very positive, gracious manner. You don't come up to somebody and say, well, you know, this is your fault. If you had made that stupid decision, then I would need to help you, and nobody else would, and life would be a lot better for you. You're not there to hammer them. You're there to encourage them and to help them in a gracious manner. So 12.8 gives us four different areas of operation, and each of these is related to service within the local church. Starting in verse 9, the Apostle Paul changes direction a little bit to start talking about the foundation behind the use of these gifts, and that is related to love. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we normally think of as the love chapter, at least the first seven verses describe the qualities of impersonal love, the noun that's used there is agape, it's, it's it follows the, dis the lengthy discussion that Paul has in 1 Corinthians 12 on the use of the spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not to be used uh, to benefit the self. They are to be used to benefit other people. Now, the problem that everyone here has, uh, look around, there may be one, one or two exceptions, but I think just about everyone here has a sin nature. And the problem with our sin nature is even under some of the best conditions, we're still pretty self-absorbed. 
we're still pretty oriented to it's all about me and what's best for me. And it's only when we're walking by the Holy Spirit that we can genuinely deal with what's best for other people. And and I've searched long and hard for how to define love. And I think the best definition I've been able to come come up with is seeking to do the best for the object of your love. But there's a problem with that definition because whenever you use a comparative or a superlative, you, you're uh, implying a standard by which this is judged. So when somebody says, I love you, and what they should be saying is, I want the absolute best for you. What The subtext we often hear is, I want what's best for you because that's going to be what's best for me. And I'm going to define what's best for you in terms of what I think is best for you, not what is objectively best for you in terms of God's plan and God's purpose. And that's what real love is, is treating people, relating to people on the basis of God's absolute standards and God's absolute integrity and seeking the highest and best for them in terms of what truly is intrinsically the best. Now, a lot of times people think that, why are you doing this to me? This is this is mean. This is hard. A child being disciplined by his parents. Well, the parents are disciplining in love. That doesn't mean they're being sentimental. It means they understand that if a child does not learn self-discipline between the ages of one and five, it will be extremely difficult for them to ever make it through life. Life demands discipline, demands self-discipline and self-control, and so parents have to teach that and instill that into their children. And that's not always pleasant for parents. It's not pleasant for parents on occasion to have to uh, give their children a spanking. Uh, it may be illegal in some states now to do that, but it is still what's mandated by the Word of God. Uh, we can't let a silly thing like uh, like state laws interfere with good parenting. That doesn't mean that you just walk around all the time spanking your kids. That should be uh, the, the the final resort for extremely b- bad behavior. But but. It's done in love because it's the best thing for the child. You have a long-term goal in mind, and therefore it's necessary to instill that discipline into them at a young age so that that pays off with benefits down the road. Now, if you want to have a selfish look at it, the more you discipline them when they're one to five, the less problems you're going to have when they're an adolescent. That's 10 years down the road. But if you don't lay that groundwork in those first five years, then trust me, you'll probably have, you're more likely to have problems when they hit adolescence. Now, that doesn't mean that if you do an excellent job disciplining them when they're one through five, that you're not going to have problems when they hit adolescence. And we all know people that were uh, maybe one child in three or four, and the other three or four, the, the parents did the, treated every child the same. They were consistent in discipline. But because of individual volition, there's always the one that makes decisions to go counter and contrary to the uh, disciplined upbringing that they had at home. And so when they hit 13, something goes screwy, hormones or whatever, 
goes a little screwy, and you wonder where in the world this little demon came from, and how could that have anything to do with your or your husband's genetics? Or, well, maybe you can understand how it has something to do with your spouse's genetics, but not yours. And then somewhere around the age of 30 or 35, suddenly they wake up and gain an ounce of maturity. And all of a sudden they come back to be something close to that loving child that you knew when they were young. But uh, those, those are, that's the result not of poor parental training, but as a result of the child's own volition. But hopefully with some training, it won't be quite as severe and the adolescent period won't be quite as long. But the point of love is it seeks what is best according to an objective external standard, not what's best for me, but is what's best according to God's hand, which means that if you are a parent or you are a husband who's mandated to love your wife, you need to have a pretty good understanding of what the Word of God talks about so that you can understand what it means to truly, genuinely love your spouse, love your wife, or to love your children. So that love is characterized here as not being without hypocrisy. So the love that we're talking about here is agape. This is going to be distinguished from the word that we find uh, in verse 10, be, um, which is brotherly love. That's Philadelphia. It's not the city in Pennsylvania. It's not the city in Turkey. It means brotherly or familial love. And familial love, is based on the Greek verb uh, phileo, or the noun uh, philos, has to do with a close, intimate type of love, that is distinct from agape. Agape is a love, we often call it impersonal, not because it's detached, but because the two people don't necessarily have to uh, know each other personally in order to demonstrate this kind of love. It is a love towards all mankind. God loved the world agape. But God only has philos love for believers, Philos is never used with God as the subject and unbelievers as the object. So that distinguishes. It's a family love. Believers are in the family of God. We're adopted into the family of God at the instant of salvation. And so we are uh, part of his family. This is a command, love for, toward all mankind, and it should be without hypocrisy. Now, the word for without hypocrisy is a compound word, uh, in the Greek, it is anhupokrites. The root word is hupokrites, which is where we get our English word hypocrisy. But it has a prefix, um, an there at the beginning, which indicates a negative, like we would have uh, unhappy versus unhappy. Uh, a bed that is made versus a bed that is unmade. The alpha privative, as it's called, privative meaning like primary, the first thing, it indicates something negative. Now, uh, the idea of anupokrites on, on is that it's unfeigned. It's not a false love. It's a genuine love with no ulterior motives, no selfish motives, no self-centered motives. It's not motivated by your sin nature. It's motivated by your relationship uh, with God. 
the word hypocrites, uh, uh, which we see as hypocrite, is a word that is used and developed in the Greek for for telling a lie, telling something that is false or something that is untrue. So the word for onhypocrites uh, is a word that simply means someone who is uh, unfeigned, someone who is genuine, someone who is honest with no ulterior motives. So what we see starting in verse 9 is a series of commands that are related to the Christian life. They're sort of like bullets. Uh, there are some who have tried to make all of them relate to love. I don't think that's possible. I think the Apostle Paul came to this point, and he's just giving a list of, of standards for the Christian life, for relating to other people and relating to life, relating to believers, and also some of these relate to unbelievers. So these are just the protocols for everybody in the Christian life. These are the standards for the royal family of God. We're to have a love that is unfeigned, a love that is genuine with no self-centered motives. What goes along with that is an ethical standard, an ethical standard in relation to good and evil. And the word here, we're told we are to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. Those two clauses go together. The word for abhor means to detest, to despise something, to reject it. It's the Greek Greek verb apostugeo, and it's used as a participle here. The grammar through this section is rather interesting, if you like the intricacies of grammar, because you've, we frequently find these, um, these participles used as an imperative. Now, just for those of you who like the minutia of grammar, what is a participle? A participle is a verbal adjective, a verbal adjective. And so that is used at times, though, in the idiom of Greek to relate a, a command. So we refer to these as imperatival participles. But what's interesting, and from what little little I've read on it, because there's little written about this, as I got into the Greek of this, and it really doesn't come across until we get into um, the next verse, uh, where it talks about be kindly affectionate to one another, your English looks like there's an imperatival verb there. Actually, you just have nouns and adjectives. And that there is a use in an idiom in Greek where adjectives were used as imperatives. And this probably is the result of something of a Semitic language influence on, uh, on, the, on the writing of Scripture. It's used in the New Testament. It's used in some early church fathers' literature. So it's not just confined to the Apostle Paul. It's a rare usage, but it's it, what you start with is a... Uh, a verbal adjective, which is a participle that's used as an infinitive, and then it just kind of slid over to where the adjective was used as an infinitive. And it took me a while to dig this out. I kept hitting this passage and reading it in the Greek, and I would read it in the Greek and translate it, and then I would look at English translations, and they all had these imperatival-type translations, and I kept looking and digging and everything, and I finally dug it out of a 
of a uh, CFD Mool's idiom, Idioms of the Greek New Testament grammar, which is uh, excellent. He's got a lot of good minutia in there that you don't find in other grammars and uh, discovered something. I, I was all excited about that because it's uh, having worked through the Greek for a long time, it's unusual that I find something totally new. So that was a fun thing to discover today. But these are uh, uh, participles, abhor what is evil, to reject what is evil, to completely detest what is evil. Now, we have to have a pretty good understanding of what evil is, and the word there translated evil is paneros, which means something that's in a poor condition. It can refer to someone who is in a poor condition in terms of their physical health. They're sick. They're ill. It can refer to someone who's in a poor condition morally or ethically. It can refer to somebody who's in a poor condition spiritually. And so when it's talking about spiritual issues, it usually has the connotation of evil or wicked. Now, there have been uh, different ways in which people have tried to utilize the concept of evil uh, to communicate something more than just sin. But in the Old Testament, it is often used of sin. And I just have a couple of points here from summarizing the usage of paneros in the New Testament. The, New Te- the term paneros is used 72 times in the New Testament. It's used of demons. They're called evil spirits. It's used of the devil, the evil one, in Matthew 13, 19, 7, John 17, 15, Ephesians 6, 16, 1 John 2, 13, and 14. It's used to describe the Pharisees as being evil in Matthew 12, 34. But lest you think that that means that they're automatically unbelievers, it's also used to describe the uh, inner corrupt nature. In, for example, in Mark 7:23, where it's talking about unbelievers, you being evil, uses the same phrase, you being evil, when Jesus talks to his disciples in Luke 11:13. He says, "If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children." See, this is one of the passages I like to go to because it shows that. The evil, corrupt, sin nature can do relatively good things. That's still evil. So evil can prefer to people who are doing morally good things like the Pharisees did, but they are spiritually corrupt or evil. So we recognize the world usually thinks of evil as someone who is doing criminal things, something, someone who's doing violent things, someone who's doing abusive things, or whatever the culture is identifying as uh, socially unacceptable at that particular stage in history. But the Bible uses evil to refer to both areas of production in the sin nature. Here's our diagram of the sin nature. I have it painted uh, black because it speak, the Bible speaks of the darkness of sin, and so it is, it is black. Now, it's motivated by the lust pattern, which is all about me, satisfying my drives, my desires, whatever I think I need right now. It produces in two areas. This is the north, uh, the upper area, the lower area. The one we normally think of as personal sins, mental attitude sins, such as anger, resentment, jealousy, bitterness, uh, a mentality of revenge and vindictiveness, 
these are mental attitude sins, sins of lust. These are mental attitude sins. Then we have sins of the tongue, such as gossip, slander, maligning, lying, bearing false witness. Uh, those are all related to sins of the tongue. Then we have overt sins, uh, such as murder, violence, assault, things of that nature. That That is what we would classify as 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 sin or evil in one sense. But the sin nature also produces good, relative good, not good in an intrinsic absolute sense, but relative good. The Pharisees were did a lot of moral, ethically good things, but like all religion, it still came out of the sin nature because it rejected the grace of God. And so someone can be like the Pope, someone can be like Billy Graham, someone can be like me and be evil because we've slipped into sin nature controlled arrogance and we're violating the principles of grace and love. And so that produces evil. It may look good, but it's still evil. If someone is walking according to the flesh, walking according to the sin nature, and they're reading their Bible, is that good or evil? Isn't that a good question? If you're out of fellowship and you are witnessing to somebody from selfish motives, is that good or evil? Yeah, that's evil. See, we don't think of it that way. If you're the Pope, that can be evil. If you're promoting any religious system that has ethical value for the entire human race, uh, if you're doing it on non-biblical principles, if you're operating on legalism and self-righteousness, that is evil. This is a problem we have today, and we see this often in the way people respond and react to some of the issues related to uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage is we have to learn to hold a standard without being judgmental. That does. Uh, somebody asked me this question this morning in an email. Wanted to know uh, because of some somebody had asked them this question. Well, Jesus uh, stood for loving everyone. See, that's the false assumption there. And not being judgmental, you know, judge not that you be not judged. So how can you have this law like they passed in, in uh, or they were trying to pass in Arizona that uh, uh, to protect freedom of, of religion? And how is that consistent with, with Christianity? And I respond, I said, because Christianity also says we're supposed to be discerning, uses the same word that's used for judging. We're to be discerning, and, and Christians are to abhor what is evil. But we need to learn how to abhor what is evil without abhorring the person. Now, in my personal opinion, the problem with the homosexual movement isn't the sin of homosexuality. The problem with the modern homosexual movement is the arrogance that wants to impose their standard on everybody else and force everybody else to validate their system of values. And they want to impose their system of values on everybody else. That's arrogance, and that's the problem. I tried to do a little research today in reading the bill that, that this was ba this thing in Arizona. I have some questions. I haven't reached a conclusion on this. 
my my gut reaction is that the law may have been written too vaguely. Uh, this could open the door to a lot of misapplication. You can see a lot of people saying, well, I don't want to serve you for uh, any reason because it violates my religious conscience. But the reality is that the freedom of conscience and to act according to our freedom of conscience is the foundation in the history of law to the First Amendment. This is where we get into a very significant and very important issue related to this particular law because there have been cases, and there was a case related to a bakery in Arizona where a uh, a homosexual couple wanted to have a ba- a Christian baker bake the cake and do the uh, baking for the wedding, and that violated his conscience, so he wouldn't want to. He didn't want to do that, and so they took him to court. And so the the legislature is forcing that baker to violate his conscience, his religious belief system, in order to. Uh, do that. And that's, this is where we get into some really difficult areas, uh, legislatively. I heard an example on the radio the other day that I thought was an interesting ana- analogy. Uh, what would they say if the case involved a, uh, uh, African American bakery down in the Third Ward and a Ku Klux Klan wizard came in and asked if, uh, if they would do the baking for a birthday party for the the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, would we expect the black baker to be to willingly provide the cakes and pastries and everything for that wedding under those conditions? And I would suggest that in this country, with the mental attitude, that no, we would think that he would be totally justified in um, refusing to. Uh, bake the cakes for that event. Uh, so these are the n- issues that are involved. The core issue is an issue of freedom of conscience, and it would seem to me that a law that is going to address that would have to be written very, very carefully so that it avoids the uh, abuse and misuse that could come that way. So, and I haven't had an opportunity to read that law. Uh, I read some, I read part of one of the uh, uh, part, part of the legislation today, but going through some legislation like that sometimes can be very, very tricky. So I'm still working my way through that in terms of trying to understand these these particular issues. So we have the sin nature here that produces uh, good. Jesus said to his disciples who are believers, you being evil, they still have a corrupt nature. They still have a sin nature and they can still do relatively good things. So that comes, we classify that as human good. It has no absolute eternal value. John 17, 15 tells us about uh, use, one of the uses where Satan is described as the evil one. But remember, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about Satan going around uh, like a minute, and his ministers going around like ministers of righteousness. They are disguised as, as serving God. And so there's a deceptive value there. So evil is not always black and dark and 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 uh, a social reject. Often it looks to be very acceptable. 
The first occurrence that we have of evil is in Genesis 2.9, talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this refers not specific. The structure here in the Hebrew is the same kind of structure we have, for example, in, in Genesis 1.1. Uh, 1, 1. It's a merism. That means it uses two opposites to talk about a totality of something, which would, of course, include that which is both good and evil. Evil here refers to uh, to sin. In this context, they're going to understand the distinction between righteousness and sin. Evil, ra, in the Hebrew is often used to relate to sin in the Old Testament. So the third point, everything that proceeds from the sin nature, both counterfeit righteousness or human good, as well as sin, comes under the category of evil. And religion is one of the greatest evils in the world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, I said 12 earlier, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13 through 15, uh, verse 14 says, No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. So this is talking about a relative righteousness or a human good. So we are to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Actually, this word kalao is the same word that is used in Ephesians 5 to translate the Hebrew word dabak used in Genesis chapter 2, where uh, when a man and a woman marry, they are to leave mother and father and cleave to one another. It simply refers to clinging or holding on uh, to one another. So we are to stick like Velcro to what is good. Uh, that's agathos. Agathos is different from kalos, a synonym also translated good. Agathos refers to that which is intrinsic, intrinsically good, that which has eternal value. Now we'll come back next time to get into the next points in 12.10 through 16. Uh, so we've wrapped up the first part, but the rest just continues to hit the standards for the Christian life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to be challenged in the area of love, challenged in the area of uh, uh, detesting evil and holding fast to that which is, which is good. And, Father, we recognize that even uh, people who are saved can be evil because of our sin nature as well as people who are unbelievers, and we are to deal with everyone uh, in love that is, seeking the, your best uh, for them out of love, following your pattern and sending this, your, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. We pray, thank you for this lesson this evening. We pray that you would uh, use this in our lives and make us, help us to understand it and see how to apply it. In Christ's name, amen.